listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, I just want to say Happy New Year's Eve. Uh, I can't believe that the year has gone by so fast. At least for me, it has. Uh, One thing that stands out for me as we celebrate New Year's Eve um, is the watch night services that my family and I used to attend growing up. So these were times that we'd get together with our local church and uh, with the aim of praying together and worshiping together into the new year. So we, we would start later into the night with the goal of continuing in this kind of attitude right up until the new year. Uh, What a sweet opportunity it is when we gather together with his church to pray. Uh, These gatherings together really grew in me a love for the local church, but also showed me the importance of praying together as his local church. We actually consider this to be very important here at Harvest. It's one of our four pillars, believing firmly in the power of prayer. And, And we want to live this out by gathering together regularly. And so we do this monthly as we get together and lift high the name of Jesus Christ in worship, but also declare our dependence upon the Lord as we come before him and plead with him and ask him to do only what he can do. And so as we press into this new year, I want to direct you to one of my favorite prayers in the scriptures, in the New Testament. So you can open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we'll be in chapter one this morning. Uh, This is a prayer that I've prayed so often for myself because I truly desire the things that Paul prays for. I want them to be true in my life, and I want them to be true about us as a church. I want us to look back in the days to come, in the months to come, uh, in the year to come as we approach 2019, that we could look back and see God delighting to answer this prayer that we're about to make. So uh, let's look to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be starting at verse 15, and you can follow along with me. So hear now uh, the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Uh, 
If you've been attending for the past few months, you already know a little bit about the church in Ephesus. Pastor Meldon has been leading us through a series in the book of Acts, and so encourage you to listen to those messages, but you can also find the background in Acts chapters 19 to 20. Uh, but to quickly summarize, the church in Ephesus is one that Paul planted, he established, he labored in for a number of years, and is now writing to them from prison encouraging them to remain steadfast in the faith. And so this passage that we find ourselves in, this prayer that Paul makes, is a natural response to what Paul has already said in the earlier part of chapter 1. In verses 3 to 14, Paul unpacks the realities and the truth of the gospel. Uh, and he's excited about that. More simply stated, Paul is saying in the earlier parts of chapter 1, this is what God has won for you and done for you in Jesus Christ. And so then after he explains the gospel truth, he then moves into a prayer for the church that they would not just simply understand these things intellectually, that it wouldn't just be a mental check mark, but that their hearts would truly be transformed by it, that it would become a growing experience for the church. The main idea then for this passage is a call to move from simple understanding and intellectual assent and move towards a life experiencing these realities. And this is what Paul tries to get across then. This is why he prays. It's only by the continual work of God that we can truly know and experience gospel realities in our lives. And so we must pray for this. And so you ask, why? Why is this important? Why is this even relevant for us this morning? Uh, I think the reason becomes clear as we zoom out and observe the, the structure of the whole letter. Paul, like in many of his other letters, uh, he, he calls the church towards application. So chapters four to six in this letter, uh, after he explains the gospel truth in chapters one to three. Or to put it another way, Gospel living is fueled by knowing and experiencing gospel truth. So gospel living is fueled by knowing and experiencing gospel truth. This is why it's absolutely critical that we make this prayer our own. Because it's only through knowing and experiencing the gospel truth that we can ever have the hope of living a life that is in line with the gospel call. So we must pray, we must ask God to do a work in us, that by the power of the Spirit we would know Him, not just in a way that our minds agree, but that our lives are conformed to it. So as we press into this new year, I ask this question not only of you, but of myself. Do you want to be a, a more loving husband, a, a more respectful wife, a more obedient child, a more gracious parent, a, a godly employer, a hard-working employee? You want to be a man or woman who is quick to kill their sin and to put to death their flesh, a man and woman who, who loves their Savior more? If you want those things, I, I want those things to be true of my life. Uh, it starts here. Before we get to the do, to do these things, we must know what has been done for us in Jesus Christ. 
Paul is clear later on in the letter that we are saved for good works. So we are to do those things. But before we get there, we need to know what God has accomplished for us. And so we pray, Lord, help us open our hearts to know and to understand. So let's look again to our text this morning. Paul, like a single jewel that has multiple facets, lifts up really one prayer with three requests. And so here's our one prayer this morning. This is Paul's prayer. And our one and only main point, God, by your grace, help me to know what I have in Christ. Take a look at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened." So after Paul makes a systematic explanation of gospel truth, the first thing and the only thing really he prays for in this prayer is that God would delight to give us, his church, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that our hearts would be enlightened. Now when Paul is praying for, for this, for a giving of a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, he isn't praying for a giving of the Holy Spirit. If we look earlier in chapter 1, we see that Paul is very confident that, that his readers, the church in Ephesus, that we as believers upon our confession of faith, our trust and submission to Jesus Christ are sealed with the, with the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we are given and sealed with the promised Holy Spirit upon our belief, trust, and submission to Christ. And so Paul isn't praying for another giving of the Holy Spirit. What he is praying for is for an increase of the Holy Spirit's special working in the lives of believers that we would come to grow, to know, understand, and have insight into the very person of God and his word. So Paul explains what he means by this with the next phrase, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. To us as modern day believers in the West, when we hear the word heart, we, we automatically connect it with feelings and emotions. But to Paul and his readers, the heart is primarily the center of our rational capacities. So our will and our thoughts. So when Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, he's praying that our, our will, our thoughts, but not excluding our affections. So all of our being is shaped and informed by the gospel truth. So Paul is praying then for an increase of the Spirit's working to give us insight in such a way that every part of our being is shaped by the mold of Scripture. I've heard a great illustration being made of this. Um, one person said this is the, the difference between a scientist who knows everything about apples. So he knows how the seed germinates in the ground to how the plant sprouts out of the ground and matures into a full tree producing fruit and how that apple even interacts with our body and how our body processes it. 
but has never tasted the apple himself. He says, this is the difference between that scientist who has full knowledge but no experience and, and the, his colleague who has a similar knowledge and yet experiences and delights and enjoys apples on a regular basis. So this is Paul's prayer that we wouldn't be like the scientist who knows everything about the apple and yet experiences none of it but that instead we would experience the gospel truth in such a way that we grow into a fuller knowledge of God. One thing we come to right away when we read Paul's letter is that this is a prayer that Paul makes not for his readers to do, not for the church to do, not for him to do something, but for God to do something. He's praying, God, would you give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation God, would you enlighten hearts? With this, we're confronted with two things. One, what is desired after in this prayer is not naturally arrived at by us. And that two, what the thing that Paul desires after in this prayer is impossible without God. I say this because our appetites are often so small. We, we don't often desire for a growing knowledge and experience of God. We, we often believe that we've reached, that we've made it, that we know enough. Only in the church will you find those who have been in the faith for decades and yet still recount old stories of God moving. And I see this in myself. Long seasons of apathy, plateaued growth, Nothing fresh being learned and yet a satisfaction with that. John Calvin says of this attitude, the quote will be up on the screen. He says, nothing, nothing is more dangerous than to be satisfied with that measure of spiritual benefits which has already been obtained. Nothing is more dangerous. The desire of this prayer is not naturally arrived at because our natural appetite is so small. But even when we do desire after these things, Paul says that we right now see in a mirror dimly, as he says in 1 Corinthians. And so that's why it's impossible without the intervention of God. And so God must give an increase of the Spirit's special working to enlighten our hearts that we may know him. And loved ones, here's the great encouragement. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. He delights to answer this. Paul says when he's recounting his testimony in his letter to the Galatians, he says this. But when he, meaning God, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. So I ask the question, do you find yourself too satisfied? I know I do. I get so easily distracted by the things of the world, the constant influx of news and social media that steals my attention and appetite for the things of the Lord. So we need to pray. I need to pray this. This is a prayer that God loves to answer, so why do we hesitate to make this prayer? So we pray that God, by his grace, would delight to make known to us his truth in such a way that our lives are radically transformed. So this is the one prayer that Paul makes. And so kind of like a single jewel that has multiple sides, he makes three requests for this prayer. 
The first thing is, God, by your grace, would you help me to know the hope that I have? Take a look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul's first request then, out of this prayer to know in such a way that our lives are transformed, is that we would know the hope to which we have been called. Right away we see something that's so different and contrary to what the world says and and offers about hope, especially when it has to do anything with faith. The world and, and secular media often ridicule those who hold to any kind of hope. They say hope is the, the crutch of the weak. To believe in anything that is not visible uh, or material is to, is to be foolish. And especially if you let secret faith or private faith bear any weight on everyday life. But even when hope isn't related to faith at all, The world has a much different definition. We use these phrases and we use the worldly definition quite often. I use it very often. Phrases like, I really hope my team wins the Super Bowl this year. I really hope it rains today. My garden needs some water. I I really hope I get a pay increase this year. Human hope, worldly hope, is more of a wishful thinking, a wishing for the best and waiting around to see what happens. This isn't the hope that Paul is talking about. This isn't the hope that Paul wants the church to know and comprehend by the power of the Spirit. We see through the life of Paul, and we we were blessed to be able to go through the book of Acts, we see Paul, whenever he encounters a group of people, he reasons with them. He makes a case and pleads the cause for the faith and the hope that we as believers have. Biblical hope then, here's the definition, biblical hope is the joyful and confident expectation of believers for what is to come in eternity. The writer of Hebrews, when he closes off chapter 6, says, the reason we have such confidence in our hope, the reason why we can be so secure that our hope isn't just one of many possibilities, but is a certain future reality, is because of the unchanging nature of God and the steadiness of his promises. So our hope then is not a shot in the dark or a blind trust but uh, a trust in the steadfast faithfulness of God and the truth of his promises. It's built upon who God is and his eternal word. And that's why Paul prays that we can know our hope because it's knowable. It's not something that is mysterious or unachievable but has been guaranteed by the very nature and the word of God. So what exactly are we hoping for? Paul, earlier in chapter 1, gives us two things, really. The first thing is rest. We hope for rest. In verse 4, Paul says that God the Father has chosen us out of the world that we should stand before him as holy and blameless. So God, when he saves, he not only brings a dead person to life and he not only uh, forgives their sin, but we have the hope that one day in glory, God will completely eliminate all of sin from our experience. 
Or to put it another way, God not only saves us from the penalty of sin, and he not only saves us progressively from the power of sin, but he will one day save us from the very presence of sin. God will save his people that way. No more struggle, no more fighting, no more sin. That's true rest. That's true rest. This is what we know with confidence awaits us. And then the second thing is a reward. Verses 13 to 14, Paul describes that when we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it acts as a guarantee of the inheritance that we are to receive on the day of glory. So the language that's used here is that of a down payment. Um, If any of you have bought a house, uh, I haven't, so I'm not speaking from experience, but when you purchase something of, of, of a great value, you put an initial sum that is representative of the total that is to come later on. So if the Holy Spirit is that guarantee or down payment for our souls, what then is the fullness of the inheritance that we'll receive? It's God himself. God himself is our reward, the very source of joy, of peace, of love. The very source of everything becomes our reward. The very satisfaction, the only thing that can satisfy our souls is what God offers to us. So when we truly grasp this, when we truly understand that our hope is to one day have true rest and then one day we will receive a reward, the reward that our souls long for, we live with great perseverance. This time, uh, as we step into the New Year, is often a season where we make uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, One of the more popular ones is uh, we we resolve to lose weight a couple pounds or to get into shape. So if a man or woman who makes this resolution only keeps his mind fixed on what he's losing out on, all the food that he has to give up, all the experiences that he's losing out on, That person will only really last so long. But if that person keeps his mind fixed on the reward that awaits, he endures with great perseverance. And so likewise, when we fix our eyes on hope, we endure with perseverance until we obtain what God has promised that we will receive. When our eyes are off of hope, though, it's no surprise when we're overwhelmed with great discouragement. John Piper, when he was asked what is the greatest source of discouragement and doubt for him, he said this, the greatest threat to my perseverance is the slowness of my sanctification. Do you resonate with that? I know I do. I I see my struggle with sin. I see how hard it is to, to point my eyes and my heart towards Christ and to be satisfied in him. It's not easy. And so if my eyes and my, my focus is only upon my failures, it's gonna be no surprise when I'm tempted to give up. Is this really worth it? But when my eyes are upon my certain hope that one day God will free me from my struggle, that I will no longer have to fight to be delighted with Christ, that I will receive the thing that my soul truly delights in, that's gonna motivate me 
That's going to keep me persevering because I know that it's not based upon me. It's upon God's faithfulness, his unchangeable nature, the hope that he has guaranteed for me to receive. I'm not going to give up that way. And so as we pray, as we pray for God to make himself known to us, we pray this first request. God, by your grace, help us to truly know what we ha- the hope that we have in Christ. The second request Paul then makes is this. God, by your grace, help me to know the identity that you give me. Again, let's look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We miss something when we move too quickly past this and we pass over this because when we walk through and we read through the letter of Ephesians, we already encounter what Paul calls is our inheritance in the Lord. But this isn't what Paul is talking about here for us to grasp. Look at, the, look at how Paul explains it. Look at what he's saying. He's saying his glorious inheritance. So not mine, not yours, not our glorious inheritance, his glorious inheritance. This is God he's talking about. Paul is saying that God treasures his saints. Uh, Look at what he says, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is praying that we as believers would come to understand how God sees us as a prized possession, as a treasured inheritance. This truth should blow us away. The fact that we are seen as precious before the eyes of God. And this isn't something, a truth that is simply stated by God, but that he's displayed and acted upon. And we see so clearly in the working of our salvation through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for an unrighteous person or for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is saying there's two categories. There's a a person who is righteous, a person who is good, and and a person would look at that category and think, I I might lay my life down for that kind of person, Uh, and yet it's still unprobable. But Paul is saying we're all in this other category of ungodly, weak sinners. And so what Paul's trying to get across is how radical the love of God is. If someone has to think twice about dying and laying down their life for a righteous or good person, what are the chances of someone in their right mind laying down their life for people like us, ungodly, weak sinners? And that's what makes God's love so radically amazing. And that's why Paul says this, but God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul, in in the earlier part of chapter one in Ephesians, shares how it is the love of God, this radical love of God that motivated him to adopt us as sons and to purchase us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here then is our identity. 
This is how God sees us. We are an adopted and purchased community. We've been transferred over from being orphans to sons, from strangers to family. That's the amazing radical love of God for us. Kenneth West, he says this. I love this quote. God is glorified in his saints, and this glory is valuable. It is part of the wealth that God possesses. And I love this last part. Dearer to him than all the splendors of creation. Paul says in, in, later in the letter that it's through the community of saints, that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So through the church, as we've become an adopted and purchased community, God shows himself to all of creation to be radically merciful and gracious through the reconciling of sinners to himself and through the adoption of those people and through the satisfying of his wrath by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The church then, that we, as when we gather, we're a display and a crying out to all of creation. Look at how awesome our God is. That he's shown us grace and mercy abundantly. God uses us as a display of his work and he receives glory from that. So when we truly understand how God views us, we find true freedom to obey, not out of uh, obligation, but out of a response to what he has done, a response to his countenance, his, his view of us. When we understand that we will never be any less loved, nor any more loved than we are in Jesus Christ, that radically changes how we live. I don't know if you missed that, but we will never be any more loved or any less loved than we are in Jesus Christ. We have the perfect love of God the Father presently because of the work of Jesus Christ. And when I understand this, I no longer live in fear and obligation. I don't live out of fear thinking that anything that I will do might out me from God's love. I don't live out of obligation to his law because I don't believe that it's through my works that I'm earning his favor and his love. But I know that God's perfect love is ours in Christ. And so we obey, we live a life pleasing to him out of a response to his radical love for us. So we pray, God, by your grace, Help us to know the identity that you give us in Christ. So the third and, and final request that Paul then makes is God, by your grace, help me to know the power that you work in me. Look at verse 19 and right to the end of the chapter, we're gonna read it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul, his last request in this one prayer that he lifts up is that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is at work in the lives of believers. So Paul isn't praying for a giving of power, but that we, through the power of the Spirit, might come to understand the greatness of God's power that was at work upon our salvation, that is at work in us currently and is available to us presently. He wants us to understand that this power is not just limited, but look at the words he uses, the the rich or the immeasurable greatness of his power. It's beyond measure. So Paul wanting us to truly understand how great this power is gives us the, the greatest expression of God's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to the highest position the right hand of God the Father. And to him alone was given authority over everything. All rule, all authority, all power and dominion was given to Christ. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So all of eternity. So Paul, what Paul's trying to say is, I want you to know the power that is at work in you. You want to know how awesome that power is? Take a look at Jesus Christ. The grave couldn't hold him, death couldn't keep him, but now he's exalted over all things, over every power, over every authority, all dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the power that's at work in us as believers. The description of the power of God that's at work in us should blow us away. This is what I mean. Salvation is no ordinary work. I say this because this is a lie that I so often believe. When it comes to times of baptisms or testimonies, I'll hear the testimonies of others, those who've um, committed crime or been given over to certain addictions or have broken relationships and have seen God work to redeem their lives and, and save them all for his glory. And I compare it with my own, being raised in a, in a loving family, being exposed to the gospel early in life. And I conclude that the power of God must be more powerfully at work in those other people. The first thing I wanna say is how foolish my thinking is. If you share a testimony similar to mine, let's praise the Lord for his grace, for sparing us from further sorrow in sin. But the second thing I want to say is, every time God saves a soul, it's an explosion of power. Every time that God saves someone, it's a dead person coming to life. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he likens the saving work of God to the very work of creation. He says, in the same way that God spoke light into darkness, God is speaking life into dead hearts. That in the same way God spoke nothing into, God spoke something to where there was nothing, God is creating something new where there's only deadness in us. God is working powerfully each and every time he saves. 
each and every time he regenerates hearts and gives faith and makes us alive in Christ. Now that's great news. Why? Because this power isn't only at work upon our salvation, but is actively working in us and is available to us each and every moment of our lives. We haven't been saved by the immeasurable greatness of God's power to then go on living on our own strength. The fullness of God's power is available to us right now. Paul says that before we were saved, we were considered as slaves and as uh, in bondage to sin. But because of the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So the same power that has released us from the bondage to sin is the power that enables us and empowers us to love the Lord and to live a life of righteousness before him. This is the power that continues to work in the lives of believers and carries us to the very throne of God before whom we'll stand at the end of the day as restored new creation. Paul doesn't end the prayer there though. Look at how Paul continues. He gives a great encouragement to us as a church, as a community of believers. Jesus Christ, who has been exalted as head over all things, over every power, over every authority, over every dominion, and not only in this age, but the age to come, this Christ, who has been placed and exalted over all things, has been given as head to the church. What Paul is saying is that Christ, who is exalted over all things, has been given as a gift to the church. This was, this was a big deal for the church in Ephesus. Why? Because the, the occult and the manipulation of the demonic was a, was a concern in their society. So what Paul is making clear is there's nothing that is above Christ. Christ is above the demonic, he's above the occult, he's above everything that could be given a name. Think of something. Does it have a name? Christ is above that. That's what Paul is saying. That he's seated above all things. And not only for the church in Ephesus. Paul says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign power. And the encouraging thing about this is that he exercises that power. God is working in the greatness of his power, the, his might, for the love, out of his love for the church. God is exercising his power out of a love and a care for his church, out of a love and a care for his saints. So things like the prodigal child or the sick loved one, the fragile political state of our world, our own personal hurts and trials. Though we may not be able to see it, God is sovereign over those things and he's, God the Father has given Christ who has power over all those things as head to the church, as one who cares deeply for his saints. God cares for your situation and is working in power in our situations. I was born in Sri Lanka and it was only when I was five that my family moved here to Canada. Uh, the circumstances of our moving weren't just simply we wanted to 
find a new home. Uh, but because there was civil war going on in Sri Lanka and my parents, having come close to experiencing much of that, wanted to get my sister and I out of that kind of place and get us to somewhere safe where we could be raised. And, and what seemed like a, a giving up of position, of possessions, of family, of relationships, of, of home, uh, turned out to be God using the political state of Sri Lanka to move our family to a place where we would hear the gospel and be saved. God is sovereign over every power, rule, dominion, and he exercises that power for the good and the love of his church. And so we can be encouraged in that. Not only do we have immeasurable power working in us and available to us, but the very one who is seated above it all, the very one who is seated in the ultimate throne of power has been given as a gift to his church. What an encouragement that it is that the king of the universe, king over all of creation, is working with great power to save us and to care for us and to renew all of creation. And so we pray, God, by your grace, help us to know the power you work in us through Christ. So as we near our close, I want us to return quickly just to the, to, to the beginning of the passage. At verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This, Paul, this prayer that Paul makes, this prayer to grow in, in the Spirit's capacity to know and understand God's word in such a way that our lives are transformed, this prayer to know hope, this prayer to know how God currently and presently views us, this prayer to know the power that has been at work, is working, and will work in us. This prayer that Paul makes is a prayer that he makes for those he's confident are already in Christ. He's heard about their faith, and he's heard about their love for one another. And so what I want to encourage you with is if you are a believer here this morning, the things that Paul prays for are yours in Christ and the fullness of them. Hope, identity, power. You're not lacking in those things. What we need to pray for is God to make us more aware to what we have fully in Jesus Christ. So let's pray together earnestly that God would open up the eyes of our hearts to understand and to know what has been done for us and won for us in Jesus Christ. But if you are here and you know that you have not been found in Christ, you haven't submitted to the gospel of Christ, the reality is that these are not blessings that are for you. Paul says that apart from Christ, there is no hope. And apart from Christ, we are outsiders and haters of God. That apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. The free gift of grace, though, is available to us and is offered to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ and his work alone to save you, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ and the fullness thereof. And so as we end, 
we look back to the church in Ephesus, and this time not in in the letter that Paul wrote, nor in Acts, uh, but we look at the church in Ephesus that's written to in the book of Revelation. John the Apostle receives a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ and is instructed to write seven letters to seven churches. Ephesus is one of them. And so he's instructed to write this letter and Jesus begins to recite what is to be written and what is to be sent. And Jesus commends them. He congratulates them. He says, whenever a false teacher or any kind of falsehood comes in, you guys know so well the truth that you're able to turn him away. That nothing false takes root in the church. And so Christ commends them. He says, you, you love the truth and you know the truth. But he, he corrects them as well. He says, but this thing I have against you that you've lost your first love. The church in Ephesus knew the truth. They knew as soon as they saw a false teacher how to correct it. They knew all the nuances of every doctrine of theology. And yet their knowledge did not lead them to a love. This is what Paul prays for then in Ephesians. That we would not simply just know that we would not just simply be able to call out falsehoods or stand firm in doctrine and theology, but that our understanding would shape our lives and motivate us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we make this prayer our own. God, by your grace, would you help us to know by the power of your spirit the hope that we have, the identity that you give us, and the power that is at work in us. And so as we close, I want to challenge you towards two things. One, pray this prayer. Just simply pray this prayer. Make this prayer your own, whether it be tonight or tomorrow. As you press into this new year, pray together with your friends, with your family, even on your own, that God would delight in this new year to reveal himself to you in such a way that he draws you nearer to himself that his word would motivate you to love him more, to love one another more and increase your faith. And then two, commit yourself to the very word of God. This isn't a prayer that is prayed in isolation. Paul doesn't pray simply that we would know and just lets it out like that. Paul prays that they would know and understand and own and love the scriptures. There's a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29 where, where Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but that which has been revealed to us belong to us and to our children. There, there are things that we, we might not be able to know and to understand that which hasn't been revealed to us in his word, but that which he has revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation, we are to own. It belongs to us. We are to know it. We are, no, we are, we are to love it. We are to make it known to the next generation in such a way that our love increases for him. So may we not only know the truth, but would the truth enlighten our hearts by the power of God's Holy Spirit and shape our love for the Lord. And so let's pray together this morning. Let's make this prayer our own. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that these things that we pray for are not things that you've commanded for us to do 
Um, but this is a prayer for you by your grace and, and by your own good pleasure that you will answer. And so we pray uh, as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, would you give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you? Would you delight to enlighten the eyes of our hearts? We don't want to simply know these things. We want to grow in our love for you, our love for one another, our love for the lost, our love for the word. We want to be changed. We want our very hearts to be molded to the shape of scripture. Let us not end up like the church in Ephesus in Revelation of whom it was said we know well and yet we don't love well. Would we know your word in such a way that our love increases for you? So God, delight to show us your word. Delight to reveal it to us. Work in the power of your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts that we may love you more. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.